Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 49. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you are not paying attention. Right. Report today, the global death rate at 3.4% and a report that the Olympics could be delayed. Your reaction to that? Well, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. And uh, but based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this and it's very mild. Uh, they'll get better very rapidly. They don't even see a doctor. They don't even call a doctor. You never hear about those people. So you can't put them down in the uh, in the category of the overall population in terms of this uh, Corona flu and uh, or virus. So you just can't do that. So if you know, we have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that get better just by, you know, sitting around and even going to work. Some of them go to work, but they get better. And then when you do have a death like you've had in the state of Washington, like you had one in California, I believe you had one in New York, you know, all of a sudden it seems like uh, three or four percent, which is a very high number, as opposed to as opposed to a fraction of one percent. But again, they don't they don't know about the easy cases because the easy cases don't go to the hospital. They don't report to doctors or the hospital in many cases. So I think that that number is very high. I think the number personally, I would say the number is way under one percent. Now, uh, with the regular flu, you know, we average from twenty seven thousand to seventy seven thousand deaths a year. Who would think that? I never knew that until six or eight weeks ago. I asked that question. I said, how many people die of the flu, you know, you keep hearing about flu shot, flu shot, take your flu shot. But I said, how many people die of the flu? And they said, sir, we lose between 27,000 and, you know, somewhere in the 70s. I think we went as high as 100,000 people died in 1990, if you can believe that. Uh, but a lot of people, regardless, I think it averages about 36,000 people a year. So I said, wow. And that's now that's a percentage that's under one percent very substantially. So it'd be interesting to see what that difference is. That's our commander in chief in the face of a pandemic, putting out bad info, misinforming the public, doing damage, just like he always does. That's what we see every day. He should be hustling every day to make things better. Instead, it feels like he's hustling to distract, to protect himself, or maybe just to survive. And America's supposed to be about more than just surviving. America's supposed to be about thriving. That's the true momentum, the motion, the courage, the energy that keeps our economy chugging, keeps innovation happening, keeps progress moving. But right now, America's stock market is rocking and rolling. And last week, crashing. Last week, the Dow and the S&P 500 posted their biggest one-week decline since 2008. Concerns over the coronavirus are riddling the market, pushing investors out of stock and into treasuries. And the 10-year Treasury note yield broke below 1.15% for the first time ever. And this week, with the news from Super Tuesday, the market bounced back up. Then, the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates by half a percentage point, a bold attempt to try to give the economy a boost as the concerns about the coronavirus outbreak rattle the world. 
This was the first unscheduled emergency rate cut since 2008, and it marks the biggest one-time cut since then. The new benchmark interest rate is a range between 1% and 1.25%. Can we stabilize this? Can we stabilize our market? Can we stabilize our fears? Can we stabilize our politics? Can we stabilize our country? That's what this year is all about. It's about seeing if someone can stabilize our ship and keep it on track. Can someone bring calm to the markets and to our lives? And that starts most of all with the captain of our ship in the White House and who will emerge as the candidate to replace him. And now truly, the fight is on. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And this is especially clear now when it comes to the election. The final showdown is going to be between one of three angry Americans. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. All three are angry. All three are motivated. All three are channeling the anger of people all across America. And all three are choosing to channel that anger in different ways. All three with millions of supporters who firmly believe that their candidate feels their pain, represents their righteous anger, and can and will turn it into positive impact. That's the core mantra of our show that we've been digging into together for almost a year is now the true cornerstone of the 2020 election. And it will be all the way to the end. Whether it's Sanders versus Trump or Biden versus Trump or Biden versus Trump versus Sanders, these three candidates are all angry. And so are their dedicated supporters. And if any one of them drops out, those supporters will be very angry and they will not go quietly. If Sanders rallies back to win the nomination, moderates nationwide will be angry and panic, and they'll pull every switch they can to stop it. And if Sanders doesn't rally back, his liberal supporters will be angry and panic and grow more and more angry by the day. And they're already angry. Ilhan Omar, the extremely controversial liberal congresswoman from Minnesota's 5th District and supporter of Bernie Sanders, tweeted this, The establishment calls us angry. Damn right we're angry. We live in the richest country in the world, yet our students drown in debt, children starve, and families go homeless. If that doesn't make you angry, who are you really fighting for? Hashtag not me, us. High debt, hungry kids, homeless families. Yeah, good reasons to be angry. So are school shootings, the treatment of Puerto Rico, and the fact that the candidates all seem to have forgotten that we're a nation at war with America's sons and daughters still dying overseas. Yeah, good reason to be angry. All of it. Democrat, Republican, Independent. We can all be united around the many issues that understandably outrage us. But the choice before the nation is what do we do about it? Which leader do we choose to hear our anger, channel our frustration, guide us towards solutions, and keep us safe? Safe from the Russians, from coronavirus, from ripping each other apart. Who can unite the tribes or at least negotiate a ceasefire long enough for us to tackle some of our most pressing problems? Problems like crumbling infrastructure, the state of our public schools, the terribly high suicide rate for veterans, and even more than political ideology. For so many voters, 
they'll decide based on the man. I say man because all the women running for president are now out of contention. Sorry, Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard fans. It ain't happening any more than the Knicks are going to win the NBA championship. That's just the reality. And the reality is also that many people now are voting for who they like, who they trust, or maybe more than ever, who they don't like. This is the anti-election. For months, as the Democratic primary rolled on, people fell in love with a candidate or latched onto an issue or a set of ideas. Now, much of that's gone. It's reduced to who do you want in the White House or who you damn sure don't. That's what I think really drove turnout among Democrats in South Carolina and on Super Tuesday. They don't want Trump, and therefore, they picked who they think can beat him. And for many folks, that's Biden. He may not be their top choice, but they think Sanders is just too liberal, too pie in the sky, too radical, maybe too angry. Now, that's not everyone, but it was a lot of people. And I think that's what's playing out in America right now. A number of people really love Biden and really love Sanders. But more people don't love Sanders than don't love Biden. And they know Biden. They feel like they can trust what he says, even if it's not as clear or as strong as it used to be. And they know he's buddies with Obama. Now they see him hanging out with more and more people they like and respect. And in the end, that ability to actually finally stop so many folks who don't support Trump from eating their own, that's what's driving Joe Biden's surge. And even more than a surge, it's a durability. The Joe Biden brand is like the craftsman tools of politics right now. People trust it and they respect it. And when times are tough, you need a durable wrench you can count on. Even if it's beat up, you go with what you know. And America knows Joe. He's a guy who's been in the political hustle for almost his entire life. And his hustle, and Sanders' hustle, and Andrew Yang's hustle, and Amy Klobuchar's hustle, all the candidates' hustle. It's an inspiring part of all this, regardless of who you vote for. This is a year where we're all doing the hustle. Do the hustle! And coming up, we're going to break down that landscape and the market with a brilliant guest, Stephanie Rule. She knows how to hustle. She's a business master, a trailblazer, and a fantastically fun person to hang out with. She's the NBC News senior business correspondent. You probably know her as the anchor from MSNBC Live, Stephanie Rule, and Velshian Rule. Before that, Stephanie was a managing editor and news anchor for Bloomberg TV and the editor-at-large for Bloomberg News. She knows Mike Bloomberg, she knows the Bloomberg business, and it's the perfect time to talk to her as Mike Bloomberg steps aside. She's also a dedicated philanthropist and an advocate for a number of great causes. She founded the Corporate Investment Bank Women's Network and co-chaired the Women on Wall Street Steering Committee. She's a member of the Board of Trustees for Girls, Inc., a nonprofit organization that encourages girls to be strong, smart, and bold through direct service and advocacy. Stephanie works harder than most people I've ever met. Her mind moves fast, and so does our conversation. We cover a lot of ground in a short time, including the candidates, breaking down Bloomberg, looking at the markets, understanding the Federate change, and a very wild answer to the car question, why she likes tequila, and how she really feels about the quarterback from my college football team. Yes, really. And she has a peep recipe. Yes, a peep recipe. So stick around for that. 
And I'll also have an important action you can take at this critical time in our history to make a positive impact beyond just washing your hands 90 times a day. I'll have some special shout outs and thank yous and some major peeps news. Yes, Easter is coming. If you're a regular on this show, you know about the peeps thing and it's peep season. But thanks to many of you who've reached out to me, I've learned that every season is peep season. More on that later. We got to hustle along. So as always, there are some key issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And like the market over the last couple of weeks, there's one that's become a hell of a wild ride already and one that might get wilder. The coronavirus continues to spread across the globe and now across America. So keep your hands off your face. But there is actually an upside. Maybe coronavirus can unite all Americans. Nothing like war or a nasty enemy to unite Americans, right? Ask bin Laden. But like bin Laden, it will only unite us if our leaders, and especially our president, are responsible and focused. If we're united, we can be the way we were in those fragile days after 9-11, when George Bush gave the best speech of his presidency. He was standing on the pile at Ground Zero, and I was on the other side of the pile, not far away. He was channeling the anger of a nation and uniting a nation with his leadership, which continued into our invasion of Afghanistan just a month later. But the president's failures in leaderships later, his failure to keep our focus, his failure in channeling that anger, are what led a united nation into a divided debate about the Iraq war and the decision to take that divided nation into war and keep us there divided for years to come, dividing us further. A moment to unify became decades of division because of his failed leadership. And so in this moment, the coronavirus can be a 9-11. It can be a bin Laden. It can be a Hurricane Katrina. It can be an enemy that unites us. Every crisis provides opportunity. And Corona might be the one thing that might actually unite Americans in this time of fear, worry, and stress. But only if we have strong, clear, smart, responsible leadership. And I'm always hoping for the best with Trump, even now, but always planning for the worst. And in these precarious days, President Mayhem is again failing to rise to the moment, failing to unify us instead choosing to divide us. Leadership's about choices. And the choices he's making so far are wasting a moment that could unify us and allowing that unifying moment to spread out into a time of misinformation, fear, and deeper division. Coronavirus isn't a Democrat or a Republican. It's an enemy that will take the lives of our fellow countrymen, like a roadside bomb in Iraq or a school shooter in Florida. And it can be defeated. It must be defeated. But that requires one antidote, leadership. And unfortunately, we have yet to find a cure for stupid. And until we do, it will take that much longer to find a cure for the virus. And like in Iraq, like after Katrina, people will die. 
people that didn't have to die. And that's on him. Trump can make it better. He can wash his hands and stay home if he's sick. Or he can make it worse. He can sneeze all over his hands, pick his nose, and wipe it all over the seat next to you on the bus or train. And unfortunately, so far, he's looking like a political patient zero. Here's Trump inside the White House being corrected by our nation's top infectious disease experts. So you think that over the next few months you think you would have a vaccine? Correct. We're facing it. Yeah. You wouldn't have a vaccine. You'll have a vaccine to go and be tested. (laughs) And how long would that take? The phase two would take a few months before we can go into a phase three. All right, so you're talking within a, about a year. Like I've been telling you, yeah. 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 But a year to a year. Plenty is talking about two months. Right? <laughs> and we would be there, and we would be there in June. We, would, we will be there in June. In a couple of months. Right? I mean, I like the sound of a couple of months better. <laughs> when, but when you say June phase one initiation, though, right? In June, yeah. not a completed vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is well, it'd be a vaccine that would be ready for testing in phase one. But, but ready, ready to use, use when? Would you say? Ready to use? Okay. Okay. I think for mm-hmm. next season. So assuming that the vaccine is well tolerated, safe and efficacious, as John said, um, then I think the question is how do we work with the FDA to expedite that as fast as possible through some sort of fast track program to get it through phase two and three testing to get to so quickly, so as quickly as possible. What do you say to that, Lenny? Look, I, I, I sense the cautiousness of uh, Dr. Fauci, and he's right to be cautious because. Vaccines have to be tested because there's precedent for vaccines to actually make diseases worse. And you really don't want to make it, you don't want to rush and treat a million people and find out you're making 900,000 of them worse. It's a good idea. So, yeah, so that's why I think why Dr. Fauci is being a little bit cautious. I don't want to speak for him, but so we need to prove that. You know, I think that with our technology, by knowing that we have neutralizing antibodies that we give, we know that this approach worked for. Ebola, we know that it worked for MERS and animals. We have a greater degree of confidence um, that this would work uh, sooner, I think. So as the World Health Organization continues to put out information, California declared an emergency and reported its first death outside of Washington State. Lawmakers got a deal together on an $8.3 billion emergency coronavirus bill. Italy surpassed 3,000 cases and 100 deaths as the virus continues to spread very fast in Europe. And there's another significant and historic impact. Three hundred million kids are not in school globally right now. Twenty-two countries on three continents have announced school closures of different degrees, leading the United Nations to warn that, quote, the global scale and speed of the current educational disruption is unparalleled. Students are now out of school in Italy, South Korea, Iran, Japan, France, Pakistan, and everywhere. Some for only a few weeks, others for weeks on end. And we saw the first coronavirus confirmation at a VA facility. Veterans may be uniquely at risk due to the concentration of VA hospitals, the elderly population in nursing homes, and psychiatric units where patients are moving around a lot. So watch that space. And... To underscore that sometimes the only thing spreading faster than corona is stupid, 38% of Americans wouldn't buy corona beer under any circumstances because of the coronavirus, according to a recent survey. Now, just to be abundantly clear, there is no link between the virus and the beer. 
Now, a company called Constellation Brands, which brews several variations of the popular Corona lager, said in a statement that its customers understand there's no link between the virus and our business. It doesn't look like that, because Constellation Brands' stock dropped 4% on Friday and 8% on Thursday, although the entire stock market has fallen sharply as fears continue to grow about the spread of the coronavirus. The markets are turbulent, and everyone's hustling for an oasis. Everyone's looking for peace. And that's true overseas as well. Now, in Afghanistan, in the midst of all the Super Tuesday madness, you may have heard that the United States and the Taliban have reached some kind of an agreement. Now, they've supposedly agreed for U.S. troops to leave in exchange for Afghanistan to never again be a safe haven for al-Qaeda and international terrorists. Now, the question is, if, if this deal was so easy, why didn't they reach it, you know, 18 years ago before so many people died and we wasted so much money? Nobody really knows at this point. And it looks like just a couple of days after this was signed, the Taliban went back to their old ways and staged a couple of attacks. Now, General Barry McCaffrey, who I hope to have on this show soon, is a four-star Army general, retired joint commander of Southcom, and a national security professor at West Point. He tweeted, this is not peace, but a unilateral U.S. withdrawal. Bush, Obama, Trump pursued a military option, but built no domestic support for changing strategy. There is zero incentive for the Taliban not to open up all-out war. Implosion likely. And I think he's right. It's already looking like that's how it's going to go. And it looks like Trump's hustling to try to claim that he won in Afghanistan. So maybe he can use it on the campaign trail all summer and fall. So watch this space and check out the hashtag that I use often, Forgotistan. Our troops continue to be hustling all around the country and all around the world. And they're doing it with a bit less money because I think you've heard before, the money for the wall is not coming from Mexico. No, it's coming from the Department of Defense. As we've covered in the past, Secretary of Defense Esper has allowed the Pentagon to divert $3.8 billion in military funds away from troops in Afghanistan and schools on military bases to the border. And House Armed Services Committee Chair Adam Smith smartly said this week that diverting these funds, quote, undercuts any argument about the need for resources within the Department of Defense and also undercuts the congressional process. It's true. You can't just hustle around Congress and take money away from the Pentagon because Congress said no. But that's what Trump's trying to do. It's disrupted the entire market around the Department of Defense. And the 2020 rush to the White House saw a market jump too. Massive. Some stocks blasted off. Others took a haircut. Some flat out tanked. But it was the most disruptive, most pivotal week yet. And the highest performing stock by far is Biden and Company, because Joe's got the mo. We got momentum, baby. We got the big mo. That's our friend Bradley Whitford from West Wing Season 7. He played White House Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman, and he joined us in Episode 27. So go back and check that out if you haven't already. It's an excellent episode. Bradley crushes it in that episode. And speaking of crushing, Biden crushed in South Carolina. It drove his momentum, and it came after a powerful and historic bump from Congressman Jim Clyburn, who this week 
became the market maker of South Carolina Democratic politics. He's the majority whip in the U.S. House and represents South Carolina's 6th district. As I stand before you today, I am fearful for the future of this country. I'm fearful for my daughters and their future and their children and their children's future. This country is at an inflection point. It is time for us to restore this country's dignity, this country's respect. That is what is at stake this year. And I can think of no one better suited, better prepared. I can think of no one with the integrity, no one more committed to the fundamental principles that make this country what it is. That my good friend, my late wife's great friend, Joe Biden. In a South Carolina exit poll, 47% of people said that Clyburn's endorsement was an important factor in their decision. So former Vice President Joe Biden finally got the win he needed. After nearly a month of bombing in Iowa and New Hampshire and finishing a far second in Nevada, Biden sealed a huge victory in the South Carolina primary with black voters pushing him to victory. It was a first ever primary win for Biden, who's running for president the third time now. Now, according to those exit polls, 64% of black voters supported Biden. Bernie Sanders came in a distant second with black voters at 15%, followed closely by billionaire activist Tom Steyer at 13%. Now, imagine how those numbers could move nationwide if Barack Obama doesn't wait until the convention to make an endorsement. If he and Michelle Obama endorse Biden and those endorsements are supercharged by the Bloomberg machine, those numbers could get worse for Sanders fast. And he knows it. Because if Sanders continues to threaten Biden, it could happen. After all, in the end, Sanders is not a Democrat. Obama knows the stakes, and he won't let disaster happen. He wants to keep the Joe Mentum going. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Just days ago... The press and the pundits have declared this candidacy dead. Now, thanks to all of you, the heart of the Democratic Party, we've just won and we've won big because of you. And we are very much alive. launch a candidacy. You you launched Bill Clinton, Barack Obama to the presidency. Now you launched our campaign on the path to defeating Donald Trump. This campaign has taken off. So join us. Go to JoeBiden.com, sign up, volunteer, contribute if you can, but we need you, we want you, and there's a place for you in this campaign. Folks, as we celebrate tonight here in Columbia, 
Let me talk directly to Democrats across America, especially those who will be voting on Super Tuesday. This, mo- this is the moment to choose the path forward for our, for, our, for our party. This is the moment, and it's arrived. Maybe sooner than anyone guessed it would, but it's here. And the decisions Democrats make all across America in the next few days will determine what this party stands for, what we believe, and what will get done. If Democrats nominate me, I believe we can beat Donald Trump. And Americans across the country agree. They think Biden can be the guy to beat Donald Trump. That's what's happening here. And that drove people out all across America on Super Tuesday. And I think it will in the weeks to follow and again in November. This looks like the old Joe Biden right now. And Sanders just looked old. I've never seen him look more tired. A lot of state, a lot of states out there. And tonight, we did not win in South Carolina. And that will not be the only defeat. There are a lot of states in this country. Nobody wins them all. I want to congratulate Joe Biden on his victory tonight. And now... We enter Super Tuesday in Virginia. And we did head into Super Tuesday in Virginia because things started to move fast and the momentum was shifting quickly. And finally, Tom Steyer dropped out. I've never been so happy to play this music. Yes, billionaire Tom Steyer who bought his way into the election just as much, if not more, than Bloomberg. At least Bloomberg has held higher office. But Tom Steyer is gone. I have loved the people, and I feel as if this their fight is my fight, and I want to make sure that's true going forward. But there's no question today that this campaign, we were disappointed with where we came out. I think we got one or two delegates from congressional districts, which I thank South Carolina for, and the people. But I said, if I didn't see a path to winning, that I'd suspend my campaign. And honestly, I can't see a path where I can win the presidency. But honestly, did he ever really see that path? Nobody else did. But that delusionally awkward gusto defined the Steyer campaign and will likely continue to be there. And although I was not a fan of his campaign, he's needed, just like everyone's needed in the fight to beat Trump. Steyer may not be a dragon like Bloomberg, but with his money, he might be a giant. We need giants too, so we'll take him. Get back to firing away on Trump, Tom. Just find someone who will run ads without you in them. You've got enough money. Go get Judge Judy or go buy George Clooney or the entire cast of Friends or Tony Romo. Tony Romo just signed a $17 million contract with CBS, but billionaire Tom Steyer can buy a whole 11-man team of Tony Romos. He could actually buy every retired quarterback that's ever played the game. He can put them all in one giant commercial like Peter Berg did in the NFL 50 Super Bowl commercial from last year, the one with Franco Harris and just about every NFL living legend. That's what Tom Steyer could do. And he could hire Peter Berg, who joined us way back in episode four, the genius director behind Lone Survivor and Ballers and Friday Night Lights. Go back and listen to that one. It was April of last year, our fourth episode ever. 
We also talk about 420, telemarketers, Trump versus the media, pancakes versus waffles, and Tim Riggins for president. But go back and check that out. Speaking of past guests, Rick Wilson also had a funny and true tweet about Tom Steyer. He said, who will get Tom Steyer's supporter? Supporter, right? But that's Rick Wilson. Follow him on Twitter and go back and check him out in episode 19. It was the episode with J.T. Lewis, the young, inspiring Republican running for office in Connecticut, talking about losing his brother at Sandy Hook. We talked about the shootings in El Paso. And we had Rick Wilson, GOP strategist, media guru, and former Giuliani advisor. He's a guy you should check out because he'll help you understand the way things are moving. And after South Carolina, things did move very fast. And candidates were dropping like flies, including Mayor Pete Buttigieg who's now dropped out. Play the music. Classy, as always, Pete Buttigieg stepped aside. Smart timing. Rather than face a thumping on Super Tuesday, he got out. His campaign will forever be historic. His career is just getting started. And I said it before, and I'll say it again, I think he'd make a hell of a secretary of state, regardless of who wins the election. But safe to assume that Trump wouldn't pick him. But Pete Buttigieg would make an exceptional secretary of state. And I was really grateful to have a chance to interview him on Angry Americans at the end of last year, back in episode 37. If you haven't checked it out, go back and download it. I asked Pete Buttigieg what he would do if he lost. And his answer was interesting for sure. And now we'll really find out. And just like he got in, and how he ran his campaign. Mayor Pete Buttigieg got out with class, dignity, smarts, and thoughtfulness. Truth, teamwork, boldness, responsibility, substance, discipline, excellence, and joy. And every decision we made was guided by these values. One of those values is truth, and today is a moment of truth. After a year of going everywhere, meeting everyone, defying every expectation, seeking every vote, the truth is that the path has narrowed to a close for our candidacy, if not for our cause. And another of those values is responsibility. And we have a responsibility to consider the effect of remaining in this race any further. Our goal has always been to help unify Americans to defeat Donald Trump and to win the era for our values. And so we must recognize that at this point in the race, the best way to keep faith with those goals and ideals is to step aside and help bring our party and our country together. So tonight, I am making the difficult decision to suspend my campaign for the presidency. He broke stereotypes, he broke barriers, and he broke into hearts worldwide. He redefined what it means to be a veteran in America. And he went further than any veteran from my generation, the post-9-11 generation, has gone so far. And he always did it the right way. Leadership is about many things, but most of all, it's about sacrifice. And even in how he stepped aside, Pete Buttigieg showed that he's a leader who puts his country first. And nowadays, sadly, that's still too rare a thing in politics. And I'm not a Democrat, but I hope he is what the future will look like for that party, for both parties, and for American politics. He's a man of intelligence, empathy, strategy, and class. And I look forward to watching him continue to rise. America needs it. 
Well done, sir. And thank you. And with typical Buttigieg efficiency, he quickly, smartly, and effectively endorsed Joe Biden. I commented last night, and I've often said that politics at its best is more than policy. It's soulcraft. And so it's fitting that I am joining to support a campaign that speaks so often about the soul of this nation. I don't believe the world is divided up into people who are all good and people who are all bad. I don't believe that how you voted in the past makes you good or bad. I believe that each of us can have good things and bad things brought out of us. And that's why leadership is so important. I'm looking for a leader. I'm looking for a president who will draw out what is best in each of us. And I'm encouraging everybody who is part of my campaign to join me because we have found that leader in Vice President, soon to be President, Joe Biden. It was a powerful, powerful pickup for Biden. And candidates were hustling all across the country. And another one came in right after it as Amy Klobuchar dropped out. And she wasted no time either. The moderates quickly fell in line behind Biden. And that included Klobuchar's unifying, powerful, and folksy message and a stern and smart warning. So many people joined us, supported us, as we carried forward with this simple but fundamental message. And that it is time for Americans to join hands instead of pointing fingers. It is time, it is time to turn back the division and the hate and the exclusion and the bitterness. And it is time to work together, to lift up those who are left out and to bring people with us instead of shoving them away. I believe, and it's the reason I'm up here, that we are never going to outdivide the divider in chief. We must, as Americans, dream bigger than that. We have to be better than that. Because if we spend the next four months dividing our party and going at each other, we will spend the next four years watching Donald Trump tear apart this country. We need Texans, we need to unite our party and our country. And to do it, not just with our words, but with our actions. It is up to us, all of us, to put our country back together, to heal this country, and then to build something even greater. I believe we can do this together. And that is why today, I am ending my campaign and endorsing Joe Biden for president. Klobuchar is right. If the Democrats spend the next four months divided, you'll find Trump dividing America for the next four years. But that's not a certainty. And it ain't happening just yet. But unity is not a certainty. Because as the moderates lined up behind Biden, Sanders continued to add to his team. Now, Sanders continues to line up a coalition of his own, and that includes some influential, well-known, and unexpected names, and one that is especially lethal. The great actor Danny Glover of Lethal Weapon fame. He came out and endorsed Bernie Sanders and has been hard at work on the campaign, hustling. And he joined my friend Chris Cuomo on CNN to explain why. What's Bernie got that other Democrats don't have, in your opinion? 
Well, he has authenticity, for one. He has a history. And that history has been one history, history of fighting on behalf of working people, of fighting for justice. Uh, and he has spoken out, and, and whether he was senator, whether he was a mayor, wherever it is, whether he was a young student himself who was a part of the civil rights movement, is the uh, part of CORE in Chicago. So there's this, this history there, and it's consistent as well. And the issues that Bernie brings to attention, whether it's the cancellation of student debts, whether it's Medicare for all, all those things are things that really citizens are concerned about. Mm. And we, we, it's not to take anything away from what it, the affordable health care, but certainly there are millions of Americans who are out without health care and, and without adequate health care as well. Health care for all, canceling student debt, the Green New Deal, they all sound good, especially when Danny Glover's talking about them. Most Americans, I think, think those things sound good in theory. But the question now and always is, can Sanders really get them done? He'd have to get legislation through a Republican-controlled Senate and huge parts of the Democratic Party that don't even support it. So is he just selling pipe dreams that he can't make happen? And will the way he sells them, wrapped in a message that he himself calls socialist, will that open him up to get branded and beaten by Trump? That's a core question, and a question we'll find the answer to in the next few wild weeks. Bernie's a hustler, and he has broken expectations. His showing on Super Tuesday broke some hearts, but he also may have broken something else in America that's pretty important that nobody saw coming. A group of truly legendary angry Americans. Fight the power! Fight the power! Fight the power! Public Enemy, the hip-hop legends, Public Enemy came out this week to support Bernie Sanders, but not all of them. And that might have been why Bernie Sanders broke up Public Enemy. Public Enemy announced that they are permanently moving forward, quote-unquote, without Flava Flav, one of hip-hop's most memorable hype men after 35 years. The dismissal came just two days after Flava Flav sent a cease-and-desist letter to Bernie Sanders over Chuck D's concert at the campaign's Los Angeles rally on Sunday. So we didn't expect this one. Flava Flav sending a cease-and-desist letter to Bernie Sanders. And... Chuck D and the crew put out their own statement saying public enemy and public enemy radio will be moving forward without Flava Flav. The hip hop legends put out a statement and said, we thanked him for his years of service and wish him well. It sounded like a Trump firing, but speaking of Trump and firing, Chuck D was not holding back in that LA rally. I know damn well there ain't going to be no Messiah and Jesus in the white house in the United States of America. But you know what? I certainly can recognize a motherfucking Hitler. Let's fight the power, y'all. Fist up, fist up, get the fuck up. It's time to go. Use your head. Come on. Go, 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 get up. Go, get up, go, 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 get up. People, come on. Fight the power. Who do you say? Fight the power. Hey, we got the fight. Trump was a 
heel of himself, but he never meant shit to me. You see, Slim, racing that sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking Andromeda. Back in the crowd, I'm ready, I'm hyping from air. Best of my heroes in the piano stand. Simple, look like you looking for nothing but records for 400 years if you check. Don't worry, you need to happen with the number one jam. Damn, if I can say it, you slap me right here. Get it, let's get this party started. Now I met the legendary Chuck D back in the day in 2004 when I was first starting out. He was very kind and very supportive of me. He even wrote a blurb for my book. And I really hope he'll join us on the show at some point down the line. But until then, stay tuned. But Public Enemy and Danny Glover and AOC and Michael Moore could not stop the Joe Mentum that was rising all across America and hit Super Tuesday like a wave. And Joe Biden was feeling it and riding that wave. Hello, 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 hello. It's a good night. It's a good night. And it seems to be getting even better. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. And he's right. Super Tuesday was super duper for that happy warrior. Biden crushed, winning Alabama, Arkansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Sanders hung in there with Colorado, Utah, Vermont, and Sanders pulled out California with a massive 415 delegates. But Biden got the momentum back and reclaimed his status as the frontrunner on Super Tuesday. It also gives him a path to clinching enough delegates to get the nomination before the Democratic National Convention in July. Bernie Sanders did nail down California, which avoided a knockout blow for now, but he lost a delegate lead in a big swing. It wasn't a Tyson Fury knockout. He still got enough delegates to stay in the race and continue the fight. But Sanders had an advantage on Super Tuesday that he's not going to see going forward. Many of the early votes that were cast were before the moderates like Klobuchar and Buttigieg coalesced around Biden. So the next few weeks are going to be critical. And if Sanders doesn't rally, Biden will have an insurmountable delegate lead. That's in part because Mayor Mike Bloomberg's campaign bombed like Enron stock. The great Bloomberg experiment was a flop. And he won in only one place, American Samoa, with 49%. Tulsi Gabbard also had a rare good showing, coming in second out there with 29%. And Bloomberg got a whopping four delegates. And a joke was widely shared that Mike Bloomberg, after all this money, bought an island, American Samoa. He may be off to that island for a rest, because Mike Bloomberg is out. But just to put it in perspective, after all the whining about how much money Bloomberg spent, there was a great tweet from Ezra Levin, the co-founder and executive director of the group Indivisible. And he said $500 million is 0.8% of Bloomberg's total net worth. So for the typical American household with a net worth of, say, $97,000, Bloomberg's presidential run was like blowing 800 bucks on a vacation that turned out to be not that fun. And Bloomberg wasted no time and quickly endorsed Biden and gave his best speech of the entire campaign, an emotional one. After yesterday's results, the delegate math had become virtually impossible and a viable path to the nomination just no longer existed. 
and I will not be our party's nominee. But I will not walk away from the most important political fight of my life, and I hope you won't walk away either. I've always believed, I've always believed that defeating Donald Trump starts with uniting behind the candidate with the best shot to do it. And after yesterday's vote, it is clear that candidate is my friend and a great American, Joe Biden. I've known Joe for a very long time. I know his decency, his honesty, his commitment to the issues that are so important to our country, including gun safety, health care, climate change, and good jobs. And I've had a chance to work with Joe on those issues over the years, especially when he was vice president. He fought for working people his whole life. And I'm glad to say I endorse Joe Biden, and I hope you will join me in working to make him the next president of the United States of America. So Bloomberg is out. And we're going to talk to Stephanie Rule in a little bit, a woman who's worked alongside Bloomberg and worked for his company and understands his machine and his political aspirations and what could come next intimately. So Bloomberg is out. But unlike other candidates, his machine is not. It's now even more powerful because it's like the same multi-billion dollar machine, but now with a new, more likable, more experienced driver, Joe Biden. And now... That machine will have Judge and Klobuchar and almost all the others and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama at some point, all powered by Bloomberg. So watch out. That billionaire that so many Democrats took shots at is now going to be fueling their shots at Trump for the next nine months. And someone who could use those shots is Elizabeth Warren. I'd expect her to be out by the time we drop the new pod next week. She hasn't won a single primary, and she finished behind both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in her home state of Massachusetts. So Warren's another piece on the chessboard that I think will soon be up for grabs. And maybe the first true question mark. Now, she's assumed to end up with Sanders, but maybe not. If she went the other way, it would be devastating for Sanders. And she's got power. And she's not a dragon like Bloomberg. She hates dragons, or at least that dragon, but she might still be a giant, and that could do some serious damage for whoever she lines with. Ask Mike Bloomberg. Eventually, she could be uniquely effective against Trump. But first, she's got to drop out and pick a side. And never forget that Barack and Michelle Obama haven't even jumped in yet. They are the second and third dragons yet to be unleashed on Donald Trump. And like the dragons in Game of Thrones, they have the potential to burn Trump down. And they're coming. And is there any choice for VP that Biden could make that would be more universally popular than Michelle Obama? She says she doesn't want it, but there's nobody else eligible that's even close in terms of popularity. Bloomberg's digital machine is exceptional and growing stronger. Soon, it'll be complemented by digital firepower from Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang. So watch Joe Biden's digital power and dexterity grow fast. He's getting a dragon, a giant, some Northmen, and eventually a red priestess. Because you never know where Marion Williams might end up, but it's definitely going to be opposite Trump. But they're all coming, and Bloomberg is coming, and the Obamas are coming, and Trump hears the footsteps. But before that, there are still a few battles left for the Democrats to fight. 
Sanders is on defense and his back is against the wall. He's wounded. He's tired. He's surrounded, maybe desperate. And that makes him dangerous. And he ain't done yet. He might be done soon, but I doubt it. And I've seen Sanders up close. I think he's going to fight all the way to the convention, maybe even beyond. But until then, the Dems are finally, generally united. So Sanders will have to be the warm-up test for their unity. If they can defeat him, then, like in a video game, they'll pass that level and go on to take on the next big boss, Trump. Like Mega Man taking on Dr. Wily or Mario taking on Bowser at the very end of the game. Because after Super Tuesday, the entire deck has been reshuffled. Now, Dems being Dems, they eat their own. Now, it might seem that their own eating might finally be settling down, but it's not done yet. They've gone from a circular firing squad into something truly different. If Biden is the zombie candidate back from the dead, he's multiplying now. And instead of them all eating each other all around, it looks like they're going to center their fire on one person, Bernie Sanders. So Biden has 433 delegates, Sanders has 328, but they've got to get to 1991, and there are more primaries that will decide it. After Super Tuesday, as super as it was, there's still about two-thirds of the delegates left to be won, and this winter tour is about to turn into a spring tour that might extend into a summer tour, and just about every week from here forward, there'll be a battleground to watch. So get your popcorn ready. Yep. Get your popcorn ready, but don't share it. Wash your hands before and after, and don't pass the bucket of popcorn around. Or better yet, maybe skip the popcorn for a few weeks. But there's a show coming, a different kind of March Madness, with a packed primary calendar all month long. And Biden and Sanders are going to be fighting for airtime, fighting for delegates, and of course, fighting for the money. I need the dollar, dollar. That starts on March 10th on Terrific Tuesday. I haven't heard it called that yet, but I'm going to call it that from now on. It's got Idaho with 25 delegates, Mission with a big 147. It's got Mississippi with 41 delegates, Missouri with 78 delegates, North Dakota with 18, and Washington with a big 108 delegates. That's all on Terrific Tuesday. Then on Saturday, March 14th, we've got what I'm calling Silent Saturday, or maybe Saipan Saturday because that's when the Northern Marianas Caucus will take place for six delegates. Now, the Northern Mariana Islands, officially called the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana, is a commonwealth of the United States consisting of 14 islands in the Northwest Pacific Ocean. It has a landmass of only about 183 square miles and only 53,000 people, but the vast majority live on Saipan, Tinan, and Rota, but they get six delegates. And that might be a good chance to learn a lot more about this place. The Northern Mariana Islands, which has been a territory since 1975, the same year I was born, participate in the presidential primary process, but not in the general election. In 2016, Hillary won the Democratic caucus there. But Republicans control the Northern Marianas Islands legislature and the governor's office. And the territory's non-voting congressional candidate is an independent, which I love, U.S. Delegate Gregorio Kilili Camacho Sablan is their independent representative in Congress. So look for that, Saipan Saturday. 
And then a few days later, on another Tuesday, Tuesday, March 17th, we've got some big ones. Big ones that I'm calling Terrific Tuesday. Arizona with 79 delegates. Florida with a whopping 248 delegates. Illinois with a sizable 184 delegates. And Ohio with 153. That's four big states with lots of delegates happening on Terrific Tuesday. And the March Madness will continue on March 24th on another Tuesday. But it's likely going to be a terrible Tuesday for Sanders. It's the Peach State, Georgia, with 120 delegates, which could be a critical battleground if they're both still in it. Then, March 29th, it's time for a primary, not on a Tuesday, but on a Sunday, which is a good idea, I think, because more people will be off work, and that should help with voter turnout. And it's on a place that needs and deserves more attention, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, with 58 delegates for the Democrats, has been a U.S. territory since 1917. Like the Mariana Islands, they participate in the presidential process, but not the general election. And Puerto Rico is a place we talked a lot about in the last episode with Rosie Perez. Go back and check that out if you haven't. And also way back in episode one with Willie Geist, one of my favorite episodes in our very first episode. Willie Geist has a deep connection to Puerto Rico. Go back and download episode one and check that out. So after Puerto Rico, we roll into April 4th for what I'm calling Sassy Saturday. It's a very wild mix of very different states, all are sassy in their own way. You've got Alaska with 19 delegates, then Hawaii with 33 delegates, a place where Tulsi Gabber will likely do well, assuming she's still in, which I think is a safe assumption, even though there are a few safe assumptions with her. But it's safe to assume that the pod with her was interesting. We had her on this show back in episode 30. So if you're fascinated by Tulsi Gabbard, go download that episode and check it out. The question is, will she support Sanders again like she did in the last time? Wait and see. We'll also have to wait and see what happens in Louisiana with 61 delegates and then over to Wyoming with eight delegates. All four of those states happening on April 4th on Sassy Saturday. Then we've got April 7th for Turning Point Tuesday. Wisconsin, 97 delegates. Now it's a turning point because in the 2016 general election, Donald Trump won Wisconsin with 47% of the vote compared to Hillary Clinton's 46%. Trump's win in Wisconsin by less than a percentage point broke the streak for Democratic presidential nominees. They had won seven elections before 2016 back in Wisconsin. So this could be a hard-fought spot between Sanders and Biden. Assuming they're both still in, Wisconsin on April 7th will be Turning Point Tuesday. Then a doozy. April 28th will be huge. Tremendous. So I'm calling it Tremendous Tuesday. Some big ones. And some states that could go either way. Connecticut with 74 delegates. Delaware with 33, Biden's home state, Maryland with 119, and New York with a whopping 320 delegates. 2016, Clinton in her home state beat Sanders in New York, which was his birth state, by 58 to 42. That'll be one to watch. And then Pennsylvania with a big 210 delegates and Rhode Island with 36. That's all happening on tremendous Tuesday, April 28th. Now, assuming they're still in in May, we've got May 2nd and what I'm calling Spread Out Saturday because you got Guam with 12 delegates and then Kansas on the other side of the earth with 45 delegates. 
Then we roll into a lot of Tuesdays in May. May 5th, it's Hoosier Tuesday. Indiana, 89 delegates. Hard fought in 2016, and Sanders won. Then the next Tuesday, May 12th, will be terrific Tuesday for Sanders because there'll be Nebraska with 33 delegates. Sanders won there last time with 57 versus Clinton's 43, and West Virginia with 34 delegates, which Sanders won really big in 2016. The next Tuesday in May, toss-up Tuesday, Kentucky with 60 delegates, which Clinton won narrowly, and Oregon with 75 delegates, which Sanders won narrowly. Now you see why Sanders might be motivated to drag this out into May, into states where he can do well. We get the last Tuesday in May off from the primaries. It's also the day after Memorial Day. But then we come back swinging in June again on a Tuesday with June 2nd and Jump Ball June, another Tuesday. D.C. with 46 delegates, which Clinton won big. Montana with 25 delegates, where Sanders won. New Jersey with a whopping 146 delegates, where Clinton won big in 2016. New Mexico with 45, which was very tight in 2016. And South Dakota with 21, where Clinton won narrowly. And then June 6th, the last one, on the anniversary of D-Day, is on a Saturday. The Virgin Islands with 13 delegates. Then we get a break for July 4th. Then they roll into the convention in Wisconsin on July 13th, if the coronavirus hasn't forced us to cancel all public events by then, which is a legitimate concern. And if Sanders hasn't relented and it's still close, the convention could be brokered or contested, which means it goes to votes. Now, this used to be normal for both parties. Delegates didn't even used to be pledged to candidates for the first ballot until 1972. That's when Democrats began using the system of primary races to give out delegates, and the GOP followed their example. In 1924, the lack of pledged delegates resulted in a 17-day Democratic National Convention with 124 ballots. The eventual victor, John Davis, ended up losing in the general election to Calvin Coolidge. And we'll all be losers if this thing drags out for 17 days. But my money right now is on it being a brutal, nasty, entertaining, and contested convention. Until then, it's going to be a hustle. But even when things are rocky, cool heads can prevail. Leaders can step up, sometimes in unexpected places. When things are going down, I always say, look for the helpers. And a trio of students in Seattle, Washington, were those helpers. They helped save an elderly guy's life. Those kids really saved his life. As Cheryl Jones tells me, her neighbor Harold Storley wouldn't be recovering in the hospital. I'm just happy that the man's alive and okay right now. If not for these boys, from right to left, you have Colby. I'm glad we heard him. Adam. I would just give him all to Hayden. And Hayden. He sounds in distress, worried that he's not going to get up. Two of them were supposed to be walking here, the Boys and Girls Club in Rochester. Instead, they left the middle school, one of them skipping the bus, believe it or not, because of a spoiled milk. I was going to go explode it somewhere. It starts with spoiled milk. <laughs> yes. Did not expect that. Hey, we're laughing now, but books in hand, the trio were walking from the school to Adam's house when... At the end of the road, and then we uh, heard like a man moaning, and he was saying like, can someone help me, please, I've fallen. Hayden just went right up and said, I'm going to help this dude. Adam was hesitant, oh. and I was really nervous about it. Try to put yourself in the boys' position. They're freaking out. You've got Hayden trying to talk to the old man over here, the other boys trying to flag people down on the side of the road. Problem is, no one's stopping. 
And I was like, oh no, that, that looks freaky. Until someone finally did, which is when Jones came out thinking someone was trying to rob her neighbor. I asked him what he was doing and he said that the guy had fallen and they, he had already called 911. That set in motion the EMTs in those now viral photos who not only rushed 88-year-old Harold Storley to the hospital, but took the time to come back and finish mowing Harold's lawn, the very thing he was attempting to do when he fell. His yard is his baby, and um, it always has been. Hey, the EMTs got a lot of love for their good deed, but the department tells me these boys may have saved Harold's life. Turns out he'd been in the cold temperatures for four hours, hidden behind his house. It was awesome. They're my heroes. Reluctant heroes. You don't want to tell your parents, right? Mm -mm. <laughs> because after all, they were never supposed to be there, meaning they could have walked away. Instead, they made their parents and their town proud. If these boys hadn't had that twist of fate, it could have been a very different story. That man, Harold, could not be with us today. But these kids were the helpers. Stakes are high in America, but that's when people step up to be role models, young, old, and everywhere in between. And that's been the case. Month after month, issue after issue, trading day after trading day, stakes is high in America. Yep, stakes is high and getting higher by the day. And everyone's hustling. Hustling to keep food on the table, hustling to get through school, hustling to make a name for yourself, hustling to avoid coronavirus, hustling for your candidate, hustling for your family. And Stephanie Rule is a hustler in all the most admirable ways. She's driven to succeed. And to treat people with respect, and to fight like hell for the things she believes in. She takes no shit, and she pulls up others behind her to show the way for her family, for her audience, for her country. Stephanie grew up in New Jersey, and you probably know her from MSNBC or NBC or maybe Bloomberg. She was a managing editor and news anchor for Bloomberg Television and the editor-at-large for Bloomberg News. She's also a dedicated philanthropist and an advocate for a number of good causes, she founded the Corporate Investment Bank Women's Network and co-chaired the Women on Wall Street Steering Committee. She supports women. She supports students. She supports artists. She supports good conversation. She's hustling every day to make this country a better place, to educate people through the media, and to lift others up. She's a hustler, and she represents the true entrepreneurial spirit of this country. And that's the entrepreneurial spirit of this episode. An episode that's bringing a creative, market-making injection of the four eyes. The four eyes that drive every episode, that drive good markets, and drive good leadership. Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Welcome to an episode that cracks into a crazy time, breaks it apart, and keeps it real. In the midst of all the chaos, this is an episode to slow it down and recenter where we're at and think about where we're going. The market is closed, and it's time to analyze the portfolio of America with a true expert. She's got some amazing inside stock tips on politics, media, leadership, family, and life. Welcome to The Hustle. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 49. 
country around the world welcome to a very special episode we pulled this out of the hat we're moving and shaking and we are inside the powerful machine that is nbc news 30 rock 30 rock we are not in the car club we are no longer in hollywood and with us i am very very happy to say the great and powerful stephanie rule great to be here uh i appreciate this opportunity I appreciate you coming on, especially right now. Can we talk about, before we got here, we just did a countdown? So we did. So when I've only been in TV, you know, the last few years, I was in investment banking for 14 years, and then I moved in to television about year, eight years ago. And the first shoot I ever went on, um, like the first field shoot, the camera guy, just as we started it, clapped his hands and said, enjoy the ride. You know, right when you do a shoot, you know, they clap for sound. Just clap, enjoy the ride. So I had no experience in television and I thought that was like the news equivalent of like action. Ah. So everywhere I went, I would, every time I went anywhere, they'd be like, you ready? And I'd be like, they'd give us a clap. And every time I clap, enjoy the ride. And finally, like two years later, someone's like, is that like your signature? And I'm like, I'm not, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And they're like, what's this enjoy the ride? I'm like, Oh, you know, it's like action. That's what they do in the news business. Except it wasn't, it was just a random camera guy. One odd Tuesday who said, enjoy the ride. And now I'm so superstitious. I can't not. So if I'm not on live TV, anything that's taped, I have to start it with enjoy the ride. I love it. Are you enjoying the ride? I don't know. We'll it's see. It's been I a mean, hell of a ride today. And this week. I mean, of course, first of all, anyone who says they're not, who has the privilege of having my job should go the hell home. Yeah. Every look where we are. We are inside Rockefeller Center. We're in 30 Rock. Being in this building is on people's bucket list. Okay? Yeah. Every day that I drive up, and yes, like when I look to the left and I see all those fans waiting to go to the Today Show, and then I'm about to go in on the right to go into MSNBC, I do wonder why I ended up like in AP calculus that I'm failing out of when like spring break is right next to me. But yeah, I'm so lucky to be here. You're not failing out. No, you're you're kind of mastering AP calculus and spring break because you're able to break down AP calculus <laughs> and keep it fun and cool and accessible. And, and we've really flexed. People should know that before we set up, we had a very special magical touch. The great and powerful Harry Smith was in this room before we got here, who joined us on this show in the first couple of episodes. And he actually helped us set up the shot and gave me a lot of advice. He moved the chairs. He's, I mean, when I, even Harry and my office is right near each other. Every time I see him, I cannot believe I know him. It's amazing. He's an American treasure. Without and you doubt. have an office next to him. That's Without probably the best part Without of all doubt. of it, right? I love, love, I he's love working been, here. He's been a great mentor and role model to me, and he's been so helpful as we build this pod and build this company. Um, and when we when we had Harry here, we asked him the same question I'll ask you. This is really, really, like we're winging this today. I ask every guest, what is your drink of choice? And you told me. Well, first I said water right. because this is a weekday yes, yes. and I do have to pick my children yes, up. Yes. But if I didn't have to, I would go margarita all day, every day and Sunday. And for me, I think that tequila is a, is a dividing alcohol that for some people, they 
believe they're allergic to it or they are allergic to it. I mean, to me, tequila is like right when you're about to go home, right? When you're like, this, this night's about to end. If you don't want it to end, tequila turns you up to 11. Like, I, I don't drink red wine. Like, wine to me is like, makes you feel like, it makes me feel like a human cat. Like, I don't want to go out. Like, it makes me feel like like my tongue has fur on it. I hate it. Yeah. But like tequila, you're ready to go. It's kind of like fuel injection. Totally. Right? Yes. Well, yes. we have, you, I don't expect you to drink this, but I want you, you know, to appreciate I the you, fact. I wouldn't. I want you to appreciate the fact that we tried. But now that it's here, well, it, it, yeah. It, it, it has a weird color, but it is a tequila. It is a margarita. Um, it's delicious. Do you have a toast that you do? Because you seem like a person who might have a toast uh, that is that is uniquely Stephanie Rule. No, not a specific one. But every time I sit down to dinner with my family, so I have three kids. Yep. And on Mondays, everybody eats dinner together. And on Fridays, everyone eats dinner together. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's a bit of a free-for-all. But my husband and I never go out on the same night during those three days. Like somebody has to be home because there are three children that are our offspring there. <laughs> and when right. we sit down to dinner, we always start our dinner with roses and thorns. So... Everyone has to do worst part of your day, best part of your day. Because for me, like if you're a working parent, by the time you see your kids at five or six o'clock and you say like, oh, how was dinner? I mean, how was school? That's just this open-ended question that they're like, fine. Fine. You know, if you see, for me, if you see your kid's face at three o'clock, you know if they're upset, you know if they're hurt, you know if they're mad. But by five, they've forgotten it. They're fed. They don't want to go back to that. But when, but. When you ask everyone to give you their worst and their best, it's kind of this great equalizer. And it makes people think for a second and also connects everybody. So I don't have a toast. I love that. But that's sort of my meal tradition. We have a couple of traditions in our family that used to really aggravate my family, but now I think they've kind of bought in. And so one thing we do is as soon as we see each other, we say today's going to be a great day. Yeah. We say today's going to be a great day. Try to bring positivity. Try to appreciate what we have no matter where we are. Just kind of look at each other in that moment. And then we do family hug, which no matter, you know, whether grandma's in town, whoever, like we do family hug. And, you know, sometimes everybody's all in on it. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the baby's crying. But we do one family hug and just that moment together that's almost like a family meditation, just to have that connection and slow down but to is make, so important. We underestimate the value of, of what it is for someone to feel loved. So I'm 44 years old and every single day of my entire life, my mother, Louise Rule, calls me on the telephone. Even like I have lived in Africa, I've lived in Central America, I've lived no matter where I am, it places when she couldn't call me, she had, she, she had it written down and so I would store letters. But every day she calls me on the phone and says, Stephanie, you might not be the smartest, you might not be the fastest, you might not be the tallest, you might not be the most beautiful, you might not be the smartest, but you are a great person and you can outwork anyone. And if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. And then she hangs up. And I took it for granted for all these years. And when I started doing uh, work with Girls Inc., which is a nonprofit in New York and other nonprofits around the advancement of women and girls, I realized what it's like when you don't have somebody that just says, I believe in you. And there's a huge difference between someone saying you're the best. I don't have anybody in my life right. that says I'm the best. <laughs> right. for, I mean, definitely not my mom. I mean, the, most of the calls I get, you wore that on TV today? You know, <laughs> with the patterns? Probably not that great. I get those calls um, from my mom. I, I get mean, my calls always. from my mom. Absolutely. I used to think, when I first was in television, I used to think my mom watched every day. Because she would call me every day and talk about, 
Was my voice raspy? What I was wearing? Yep. And then one day we were out to lunch in Florida and we run into Kathy Lee Gifford. It was before I worked here. And she freaks out. I mean, it was like she was singing Lady Gaga and Elvis and Barbara Streisand, like all wrapped in one. She's freaking out. Okay. So I introduced her to Kathy. I didn't even work here yet. And they start talking because Kathy Lee is the most gracious person you've Very ever met. Very gracious. But all of a sudden, my mom starts going on. And like, my mom practically knew the rundown of, of Kathy Lee and Hoda every day. And at the time, I used to be on TV at the same time. And I'm like, hey, um, how, how do you know every single thing about that show? She's on the same time I am. And my, and she, my mom like blushed a little and she's like, well, um, I'm like, mom, I, I know you watch me every day. Like you talk about what I'm wearing. And she's like, I tune in right at the top of the show to see what's happening. But <laughs> then I, I switch over because, you know, her content really speaks to me. And I'm like, what? Like all this time. And she'd been completely BSing me because I'd be like, you know, what'd you think about that guest at the end or blah, blah, blah. All that time. Oh, I liked him. This and that. Meanwhile. Two minutes into the show, when she heard my voice, saw how messy my hair was in my outfit, she was out. Kathy Lee and Hoda were waiting for her. But you knew she was watching. Oh, And you knew yes, she, yes. That, that aura was around you. Yeah. My kids have been going through a pretty weird experience, too. My son's four. The baby's one. And when I pop up on TV, mm. which happens occasionally, Ryder used to say, Mommy, why doesn't he wave to me? And so I'd say to him, "Okay, buddy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of nod gotta at give you, him a wink. gonna give yeah. you a wink, gonna give you a wave, and and that's meant a lot to him. But watching your parents on TV is kind of a surreal thing, right? And, uh, and watching surreal. your kids must also be a surreal thing. My mother, you know, loves to comment on my tie and my facial hair and and the colors that I wear." Um, but she's also been really, really insightful and she's become a really good coach. Like I, I think they, they help me stay really connected and, and it helps me understand how different generations of people come together. They love Harry, right? He's like, the best. and Kathy Lee is a great example. I, I actually went to a wedding at Kathy's house once, which was a totally, my friend, Bobby Thomas, who you may know from this building, mm -hmm. got married at Kathy Lee's house, which was another kind of Forrest Gump moment where I was getting dressed in a closet. Basically, amazing. Had gotten there late, uh, drove Justin Timberlake's parents up there because they didn't have a ride, and then came out kind of flustered. And Frank Gifford standing at the top of the stairs with a dog in his hand behind like this room where he's got his Heisman, and I'm just like, where the fuck am I? Yeah, like, but that's where, like the Kathy where Lee the circus. Fuck am I? In but she all was so warm and kind yes. and hosting a wedding. But there's a lot of kindness I think that surrounds anybody who succeeds, and and you have been. Incredibly successful oh. in a short period of time. But I want to go back to, we started actually at Wall Street around the same time. We're almost the same age. I'm a year older than you. I'm 44. And I'm 45. And you started at Credit, Credit Suisse, Suisse yeah. in 97. Yes. I started at JP Morgan in 99. Doing what? Investment banking. I was in equity capital markets and you were doing derivatives, right? I was. Credit And derivatives. you became an MD in eight years. I think shorter than yeah, that. Yeah, shorter than that. But you you were yes. in a really, it was an intense time. It was a super intense time. You must yes. have been crushing it because then you moved quickly up into other roles. But, so when I started- when, uh, Can actually, I ask you when, you, when you think back on that time, Stephanie, because I got to tell you, I hated it. Oh, like I my, loved my, it. My, my, my um, best days on Wall Street were still worse than my worst days in the army. Because I just, I hated it. And actually I'd never been treated like shit more. Oh yeah, yeah. In, working in, on Wall Street at that time than I did in the military. I got treated like shit working in a bank much more than I ever did in the military. I never got, no one ever put hands on me in the army really except to train me. But I had an MD smack me once and say, 
pay attention to this. This is screwed up. Phones getting thrown. I mean, some of it's exaggerated. Yes, uh, no, but that no, time, yes, and it's that how time, you feel. late 90s, pre-9-11, mm-hmm. my last day was the week before 9-11. Like, I walked out on September 7, 2001, was up for promotion, and was like, I'm taking my bonus, and I'm out. And they were like, oh, but, you you know, you might be moving up. And I was like, no, nah, I'm ready to go. But two years there for me was actually harder than, like, six years in the Army, just because it wasn't a fit for me. But I appreciated the crash course in business. It was business school at a really great pay. I made more money in my first year than my father ever made in his life. And it was, it was a really exciting time to be there, but it was also really dynamic. How did, what did you learn from that? I mean, I And when you look back on it now, how did it prepare you for what you're doing now in this moment you're in? I think both jobs are the same. I think every job is about building relationships. And if you can build a relationship and people trust you, Not that you have every answer and every solution, but if they trust that you are there to help them and make a positive environment, uh, it's a great time. And so for me, uh, a mistake that I made then that I still make, but I'm really cognizant of it, was being in a rush. So I entered Credit Suisse's training program. I was definitely the least prepared. Uh, I didn't have any sort of finance background. I got into banking because I was living in Europe studying. I wanted to stay in Europe. I didn't have any money left. Mm. So I wrote letters to people who worked at banks because I knew they had banks around the world. I got a job with Merrill Lynch. They ended up sending me to New York for a summer. And in that summer internship, I had to deliver something onto a trading floor. And their fixed income trading floor looks just like a newsroom. And I'm like, I don't know what anybody here does for a living. Plus, it's filled with boys. And I'm like, but this is totally what I'm going to do for a living. And I met two nerds. And I said, if I come in super early and stay late, can you teach me what you're doing? And they were like, yeah. And so I spent the summer at Merrill. I ended up going to Credit Suisse. But, like, I had no experience. And the one bad piece of advice I got was... Get out of the training program. As soon as you get there, because you rotate to different desks, to departments, someone said, get out of the training program because you're going to limit how much you get paid and you're going to be stuck in like a band. Get yourself onto a desk. And I really, you you know, if you go anywhere and you're offered to be in a training program, that's like free school. Stay there for two years while there's no accountability. And of course I didn't. So as soon as like we finish the basic program, I sprint out. I get a job on the corporate bond desk and I'm sort of off to the races. The problem was you should spend that two years learning. And I didn't. So then I spent the next 14 years like kind of cheating. Like there was, there were so many basics. There was so much fundamental content that I never learned that I was like, I'm just going to hustle my way through it. And so in banking though, I mean, straight out of the gate, I figured out what are things that they need that they don't have. And I'm going to solve for that. Like from when I was 21, like I'm going to get all of these nerds restaurant reservations at the hottest restaurants in New York every single Tuesday, Wednesday, (laughs) Thursday. I'm just going to make sure I have a seat at every single one of those dinners. Right. Because I'm like, you guys can't eight dudes can't go to this restaurant. You're going to have to bring me to. So then at 21, I was going to every single client event. And then about a year and a half into it was when sort of credit derivatives was just being born. And I met like super, super nerds who didn't have access to any of those clients because they were the guys who were kind of creating credit derivatives. And I'm like, if you teach me this, I will give you access to these clients. So they taught it to me. And then I went to the whole sales force and I'm like, you guys don't even know what this product is. Why don't you let me sell it to your clients? And they were like, 
fine, we don't care. And then it turned into a business. So it's not, to, to me, it's no different from TV. Like when, when in TV or media, in reporting, it's like having a client. You're not going to rip a source's eyeballs out because then you can never, ever go back to that source. But if you develop a relationship with that source, they clearly have a story they want to tell. You can tell 20 of those stories. They can help you get better and smarter in your content every day. So it's just like banking. Hedge fund clients, I'm not, they're not getting all their trade ideas and investment ideas from me. Right. But if I can hit a single or a double with them every single day, and if they can trust me to try to solve their problem, that's the same. And no different from TV. Like when I screw up, when I get over my skis, if I'm honest about it, and I can pinpoint now, like very clearly on TV when I screw up the most, and it's when I'm the least prepared. It's usually on a Thursday or Friday yeah. when I'm like kind of lazy, I'm kind of tired. Like on those days, fast forward eight hours and Tucker Carlson's making fun of me that night on what I did that day. And you know what? He's not wrong. He's mm. partially wrong, but like- he's, I also, get, he's also a dick about it. Totally, yeah. but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? It's that's not, on him. It's not fine. That's but the only no, thing I'll here, disagree with. But here's the about. thing. Yeah. That's on yeah. him. Yeah. When yeah, I sure. left Bloomberg to come to NBC, Mike Bloomberg said to me, Seventy, you're going to fail in cable news. Really? And I was like, and I and I was like, thanks, Mike. And I said, why on earth would you say that? And he said, because you're too pragmatic, like you're too centrist. He said, in cable news, only the extremes win, all the way to the right or all the way to the left. Well, and I said, no way. And I said, look at you, Mike. I said, look at your success. And he said, what? And I and I said, in politics. And he said, well, I ran for New York City mayor uh, in a totally easy race against a loser. And I put $75 million into my race. And I said, well, you know, I don't have $75 million and there's no losers at NBC, but I'm going to give it a shot. And this goes back to, is, is it right that Tucker Carlson's mean or nasty or, or a jerk? Maybe he is, but who cares? I'm going to make mistakes on TV and I'm going to say things or do things in my life that I'm embarrassed by. But if every day I can try to say, I did my best, I screwed up and I'm so proud of myself, then that's a good day for me. I and I, I look I at it. people yeah. who are putting on shows and going to the extreme and it bums me out. But that's why people like you because you're authentic, because you're real. And, you know, going back to where we started, whether it's taking the dudes out to the, <laughs> to the restaurants or on TV, you're bringing that accessibility. So you're bringing spring break and AP calculus <laughs> together, you know, when you were, when you're on wall street and again now, and even with us right here, like I, I didn't think, I thought you might drink the margarita, but I was like, you know what? It's, it's yeah, been kind of a crazy ours. day. Yes. So we're going to get, I want to come back to Bloomberg because I think that's insightful. And his response to you is very insightful because I think he's shown powerfully, especially in the last couple of weeks that he doesn't have a really good feel for what people will respond to, especially when it comes to media. And that's been maybe one of his biggest blind spots. But I want to go well, back to, I want to come back to that if I can, Stephanie. Yeah. I want, very basic question that I ask everybody. When you were growing up in those early days, Stephanie Rule, what was your first car? A white Chrysler LeBaron convertible. Really? Yes. Wow. And I thought I was very, very cool. In what it. year? Do you remember what year it was? Um, 1993. I was, I was my high school homecoming queen and I, I didn't turn 17. That's how old you have to be to get your driver's license. Um, I didn't get my driver's license until like I turned 17 at the end of December 
And truth be told, I didn't want to be a designated driver. And so I didn't get my license for another six months. <laughs> wow. And was the top white also? <laughs> my colleagues from NBC are sitting here going, I can't believe you just See? said that. You know what? It was a long time Isn't ago. Isn't this podcast fun, everybody? Yeah, I mean, that was but my rationale. What was the color of the roof? The top? Well, it was, was a white, white Chrysler white, Liberate, no, white with a white a top? white Chrysler Liberate convertible with a black top. Wow. Yeah. And, and then, how did you, and, how, and I'm a whore, you know what? People have their gifts. And yeah. I'm, I may be the worst driver you've ever met. I eventually got rid of it because I was once driving through the Lincoln Tunnel with the top down and I had three girls in the car with me. And somehow I sideswiped the inside of the Lincoln Tunnel and, and blew out all the tires on the right side of the car. And we were like in the beginning of the tunnel. So you can't stop. There's no stopping. And it was just, I mean, we, we complete, I mean, we wrecked the side of the car. We made it out the other side of the tunnel. But after that, um, we, it was, it was, that was the last time we saw that car. That's a pretty good car story. Yeah. Last time we saw it. So let's stay on things connected to the Lincoln tunnel and mm -hmm. New York city has become this epicenter of the 2020 race. It has. Right? You've had, you know, Gillibrand and you had Cory Booker across the river and we've obviously got Trump and Bloomberg and de Blasio and everything else. So being in this, in this building, you've been in many ways in the epicenter of the 2020 race, but this week is nuts. But yeah. in maybe some ways predictable, maybe not. Now, as it seems, the question was always, are the Democrats going to finally stop eating their own? Will there be a Game of Thrones moment where they rally around a Jon Snow and, and coalesce to fight the evil White Walkers okay, on the... Hold, but let everyone me, let me keeps finish. saying that. Me, and you know finish. what? Hold on. Hold on. We ripped on Democrats. My show. My okay. show. My show. My show. Like, I love this because when you're hosting, I have to let you steamroll me. True. Right? And this yes. is fun because I've never... I've been on your show so many times and I'm grateful yes. over the years to have, to have had those opportunities. But don't you think it's mean that, like, Democrats are eating one another... Uh, well, Everybody complained that Hillary Clinton put the, they put the thumb Democrats on her scale Democrats are undoubtedly eating their own, and now you've got Bernie Sanders, who's probably going to be like Xerxes and fight it all the way to the end and not join the clans when they all unite. I think that's a very real possibility. But I've always had a very interesting take on Bloomberg that I don't think folks understood, with the exception of you. If it's Game of Thrones, Bloomberg is not actually a tribe. He's a dragon. And everybody in Game of Thrones wants a dragon. And if you have a dragon, it's a powerful asset on the battlefield. And you don't want that dragon to go to the other side. So for all the Democrats who were shitting on Bloomberg all the time, I said, you know what? You may not like him enough, but if he goes to the other side, it's going to be a real problem. Now, this week, the, 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 the campaign has ended. And Bloomberg today. today, Bloomberg has always said that his goal was to defeat Donald Trump. Now, that, I think people who have watched him and seen his strategy and seen his operation know that that meant giving it a shot, watching the numbers, and having an alternate strategy. And the alternate strategy, in my view, seems to be unfolding now, where he's got this massive digital operation, a huge staff, endless resources. If it's a fight, he's the guy with all the guns. And now he said, you know what? I shot the guns. I gave it a good shot. They didn't love me. They didn't respond to me. Here you go, Joe. Here are all the guns. And that's what I think is the X factor right now. And the other dragon being Michelle and Barack. Okay. When they come in, they're going to be the total game changers in a way that nobody else can. But you've been, you, you know, Mike Bloomberg, you've been around Mike Bloomberg. I've been a critic of Mike Bloomberg. I've worked alongside him on some issues, but this is a really, really critical moment. So you've been breaking it down in the news, but can you break down what you see in this landscape and what you think people might not see that you uniquely see because you've been around him, because you have that business background, and because you have a really good feel for that intersection of business and politics and media in a way that nobody else, I think, really Thank does. You. 
So the Game of Thrones reference is hard for me because to me, I think that show is about sex. So it's making me throw up in my mouth that you're referencing all these people. That's the gross margarita. making me like super gaggy. But away from that. Yes. um, Here's the thing. Mike Bloomberg is an extraordinary leader. Um, from what he's done in City Hall, for what he did at his company. Uh, watching even what went down in the last few weeks was was amazing because you have to remember, the last time Mike lost at anything is when he left Solomon Brothers 40 years ago, okay? And what did he do? He went out and built a Wall Street adjacent monopoly that made him the 12th richest person on the planet. And for people who don't understand what Bloomberg does, He sells a product that's ridiculously expensive and has zero interest or willingness to ever lower the price. After the financial crisis, when banks were like, yo, 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 these terminals cost way too much money. We're about to cancel subscriptions for a lot of them. Sorry, dude. For He's people like, who, did, who don't understand, yeah. old Bloomberg machines. When you and I worked in the yeah. street, the Bloomberg machines were almost like exclusive access to the internet. Correct. It was like basically. I didn't right? have an email address yeah. until uh, until I until I right. came to work right. here a few years ago. That's how you got information. My, that's how you it got was, everything. It was the premier and and lone source that the entire industry used for information. It's the only way you, you had to use his machine. You had to yeah. use his software, and he, he owned it. Right? It was there's one of the no first co- things you learned when you came in yes. the street. They taught you how to use a Bloomberg machine, Correct. right? There's no competition yeah, for it. Yeah. I think, I think that that's really, really important because people don't understand how innovative that was and how good at execution yes. it was, right? It had to work, right? But and it had to work at the highest stakes for the most demanding clients Correct. In, in a really difficult environment. And he knows exactly how to deliver that. And so yep. Mike's skill, I have never met anyone who has his sort of operational excellence and his, I can't think of anyone who can convene more impressive people than Bloomberg. So I worked in banking and I was always interested in working in television. And uh, it was that I was giving a speech for a nonprofit, uh, a women's group. And after the founder said, women and minorities always get lumped together. But if you take the 50 most powerful women in the world, they don't do that much to help one another up there. But black guys do. And she said, every one of you is senior in your industry. You need to decide what you want to do next. And someone else here has to say, I'm going to get you there. And I said, I've always wanted to work in the media. And a woman there ran HR at Bloomberg. And two days later, she introduced me to Andy Lack. Who's not Mike. Mike was in City Hall. Andy's actually here at NBC now. But the whole experience was complete Bloomberg ethos. And I said, I've never worked in television. Sorry. Your phone, that's Bloomberg calling you now. To, to exactly. they're like stop speaking to, to no to maybe yeah. offer you a job. <laughs> I don't want one. I have. He's one. scooping up just about everybody there talented in this city. But, but it's that's what he he convenes. Yeah. And so they said, um, I said I've never worked in television. And Andy Lack said, you need to be three. He goes, there's no more TV presenters. He said you have to know the content, love the content, and have to be great on television and have people want to watch you. And I said I don't know if I'm number three, but I have number one and two. You can pay me nothing but I need you to give me a show and have someone teach me how to do this. And they said, yes. And that's that company. And I start, I got to know Mike better my last year working there. And he, he is a problem solver like no one else, but here's what people had to experience since he decided to run. And I say this in the most complimentary way. It's a little bit like the wizard of Oz with Mike, the Oz that he creates his campaign, all that he does, all that he's done on climate and guns and education, second to none, extraordinary. 
But when you pull the curtain back and it's just Mike on his own, he's kind of crabby. Yeah, yeah. And he's disinterested. Yeah, that's the magic. And that's but, the magic. But that's also... It's also the power. One of the things the that power. makes him that successful, he's sentimental about nothing, right? <laughs> a, lot of, a, a lot of the mistakes that we make in our careers... We're, we're sentimental. We're emotional. We hang on. He hangs on to nothing. He's the most in the moment present person I can think of. And unfortunately, when you are running for office, it's about connecting. So look what happened. People came out and said to Joe Biden, looked at Joe Biden because they wanted to be comforted. They wanted somebody who cares. And Mike on paper has, and not just on paper, has done extraordinary things but the way he makes you feel, the answer is nothing. And that translated. And I think what happened last night was really stunning because Mike's number one goal is to get Trump out of office. Right. He looks at Trump and says, our democracy is at risk. He's long-term going to hurt our economy. He's going to destroy our environment. If I don't do this, I'll only have myself to blame. And he, he got in at a time when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were soaring and Joe Biden was fumbling and listen, I'm sure he didn't think it was going to turn out quite like this because two weeks ago, he had amazing momentum. His camp, he built an incredible campaign. His camp, his team was a machine. I mean, they handed And he him- was, he was doing it in part because he wasn't in front. Like the, the magic of Bloomberg, in my view, right, is that he's able to assemble all these assets and assemble all these tools on a battlefield where he can compensate for the fact that he's not the most charismatic guy on the stage. But and, no and, one and, saw that. Well, he, just, well because- he didn't see it. And he didn't want to acknowledge, maybe, or he was stubborn, or maybe he was disconnected, or maybe he just made a bet, right? But, but recognizing, when they ran the three-minute coronavirus ad, what I said was, you know what? Great content. I wish he had paid for somebody else to deliver it because he just doesn't deliver it well. And that was a blank spot that I think he underestimated that really, really hurt him over the last couple of weeks, especially. But here's the good part. They knew here's, it, but they underestimated here, and, and here's the good part, right? In New York, he, he is better situated to run things than pretty much anybody. I put this out to to. Bernie Sanders supporters and de Blasio supporters. You can shit on Bloomberg all day right now, but if you're living in New York and coronavirus is hitting, who would you rather have as mayor, de Blasio or Bloomberg? And that's the kind of guy that we know in New York can make things work to include his own machine. So the opportunity now is to take himself out of that Wizard of Oz role and put put Biden in it. So to me, and recognizing that Trump is the number one. This is where I really give Bloomberg credit, and I share this. Trump is the number one strategic threat to this country. I think he's the number one strategic threat to this world because he's so unstable and the impact that he has. So Bloomberg ran the numbers, did his analysis and said, that's the number one priority. It's the most dangerous thing. I've got to focus on that. And he's been doing it ever since. Now he just has to adjust that machine on the same target and put himself in a different seat and put Biden in front and assemble all those weapons behind him. And that's why Bloomberg gets under Trump's skin. That's why this he was up last night got, tweeting. Because well, he knows he's coming. He hears Bloomberg's this footsteps. This whole thing just got so much scarier for the president because absolutely, you can take the state of Virginia and that th- those are the most important numbers to me, what happened there last night. Because in 2018, Mike put an enormous amount of money in the midterm elections and that flipped Virginia. Flipping Virginia gave Democrats the House, Democrats having the House, impeached President Trump in the House. Everybody knows that. Joe Biden spent like a hundred grand on one radio ad in Virginia and he won. 
So Mike learned last night. He knows from a year a year ago, his machine gets people elected. Right. He's just not the guy. Yeah. I think the last two weeks have probably been very hard for him because I'm not saying all he needed to do was carry the ball, but they handed him an extraordinary campaign. And listen, he failed at this. But he had to do things he'd never done. He's never really run an election where he's had to go shake hands and go to pancake breakfast and run around the city and and work for the votes, right? And the debates, you know, he didn't have to scrap it up. He didn't have to have somebody. He kept going down. Every time they came at him, he would respond to their criticism instead of what a normal skilled politician does is bridge and talk about something else, right? Go back to your main talking. He failed at the debates. He got sucked in over and over again. And, and, And on a very basic level, he looked inexperienced. For the first time, Mike Bloomberg looked really inexperienced. Having somebody punch him in the face right out of the gate is not something he was used to. And he did not like it, and he did not respond well. But here's my point, Stephanie. I don't think it matters now. I don't think it matters any more than the the debates mattered for for Biden in the past or for Kamala Harris, who did well. You can do great in the debates. You can do poorly in debates. That's almost ancient history now. Now, as these forces align on a very new battlefield, I think it's all different. And and Bloomberg, in my opinion, is the most valuable chess piece on the board until Obama comes in. On January 10th, his campaign manager, Kevin Cheeky, said to me, Mike will either be the nominee or he will be the most important person to the nominee. 100%. And so that's where he is. So for the president, think about what's happened in the last 24 hours, okay? The administration has said over and over, Democrats are going to tank the economy. They're all a bunch of socialists, okay? Last night, Bernie Sanders certainly didn't have the night he thought he was going to have. I stayed here super late because we were preparing for overnight markets to tank if Sanders soared. Because you're forgetting when a week ago... When Corona first really got markets worried and you saw markets drop, they did also drop because Sanders had done so well in Nevada. Okay. Right. right. There was a risk last night that markets were going to drop, which is exactly the president would have loved to have said, see, it's Bernie Sanders. It's not just Corona. So markets don't drop. They can't make the Democratic Socialist argument. The digital operation, Mike's is called Hawkfish, which is the only equal counter to Trump's, is now going to be offered to Biden. And then here's one more thing. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve cut rates, an emergency rate cut. Do you know when we see emergency rate cuts? After 9-11 and the financial crisis. One of the main reasons coronavirus has markets tanking is uncertainty. So many questions with no answers. Suddenly when the Fed who has way more, a lot more information than you and I do, cut rates in an emergency scenario, we could, and I'm not saying we will, tip into recession. So now the president could be in a scenario where he's running against a beloved Democrat with the money machine and the digital machine of Bloomberg, who's quickly overnight been able to pull more and more Democrats under one tent and the economy could get shaky. Things just got real. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also found out that America is not as liberal as a lot of people think. Last night, in my view, was a check on the future of America that's more moderate than I think some people judged. I, you know, People kept saying Bernie was going to be great for turnout. He was. He was great for turnout against him. I think that a lot of moderates came out and were very concerned about what Bernie Sanders represented, especially when you look at the South and how that became a firewall for him, as it did last time, too. But I think that the threat of Bernie Sanders actually mobilized people tremendously. I saw it among my moderate friends, people who, who were blue, blue dog Democrats, who were terrified 
of the prospect of, of Bernie Sanders in the same way they're terrified of Trump. So I think we've got this turnout wave that's going to you know, kind of be a crescendo last night, but then crest again when Trump comes. People aren't voting, in my view, as much because of what they care about, but what they're fearing against. And well, that's what I think you saw last night. I think people deeply underestimated how much America did not want Bernie Sanders. He's going to have enclaves where he did strong. He did well. People who love the free shit for everybody idea. But I think he was selling a kind of populism that people are much more jaded by after Trump. Right. The idea that you can promise me what I want and it's all going to be easy. Give me somebody to settle it down, to try to reduce the temperature, bring us together, somebody I know. And you've got the, the parallel track of Biden voters are baked in. They love Biden the same way Trump voters love him. No matter what he does, they love Uncle Joe. And I think that that came out last night, too. So all that comes together, Stephanie, into a really dynamic battlefield that you're going to be covering every night. But Bernie has woken us up to the fact that we can't just say we don't want a revolution and that's too much. Because the fact of the matter is there's $1.3 trillion in student debt. There's $80 billion in medical debt in this country. So this isn't just people going from, you know, Burning Man to Coachella <laughs> saying, woo, uh, free stuff. It's people who are saying the American dream doesn't work for 100%, me. hundred percent. But you and have so to, you also, as a leader, you also have to show how the American dream beco can become more possible for those Correct. people. Right. And and saying that all the, the student debt's going to be gone is like saying, you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow. We're going to, revolution is, is a very, is a very radioactive word. Yeah. Right? When you hear revolution you hear socialism those are powerful words that i people, don't know why that democratic that people, socialism doesn't just get a new brand a hundred percent remember when remember when democrats used to love bad. liberal and now they're progressive yes. right liberal became a bad word now it's progressive but the rebranding of these ideas i think is critical some of these ideas are absolutely valid i i share so many of the initiatives that these that people who have supported sanders want but there has it has to be realistic right and and the idea that we're going to get rid of all student debt while the republicans can continue to exist in America is as, un is as unrealistic as saying you're going to build a wall. Like it, it, but it sounds great. And people love the sale. They want to believe it's true. And that's why I think you're going to see more moderate voters, more experienced voters, more sophisticated voters, more diverse voters are going to come toward Biden over time and but, against Trump. But let me ask you to pivot if I can. But hold on, let me you just say please. one thing. Both Bernie and Trump do something really important. Yeah. They do genuinely see that forgotten voter. And but that, they also see the anger. Like that's but why yes, but I'm saying I think it's important, right? When when yeah. the president does his State of the Union yeah. and lots of the things he says aren't true, and I'm sitting there like scrambling it down. This is not true. He knows it's not true, yeah. but but that's the problem. But hold there's, on, there's when no he but after says that, right? like that's my blue problem. collar boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes that person feel seen and heard. A hundred percent. Because Hillary Clinton wasn't the first person to not go to Western Pennsylvania in late August. Democrats took those votes for granted for years. 100%. So let that forgotten voter be a wake up call that they need to count. Right. A hundred percent. But don't lie to them. Don't oh, sell yeah, them bullshit, yes, right? Because yes, yes. that, that's the thing. I see you. I hear you. Now, when you get to that point and you say to them, you're angry. I see you. I hear your anger. Let's talk about what's possible. Yes. Right. That is very important because you don't want to disenfranchise people even even further with just lying to them, selling them shit that's not possible. Right. Oh, here's and here's amazing. the difference for me. Right. Sanders and Trump, in my view, sell a lot of dreams to people. The difference is Trump can actually get them done legislatively. If Bernie Sanders was elected, the Democrats aren't going to support half of his shit. So the which is exactly what happened when he was chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee happened throughout his career. Big, grandiose ideas. 
and then he would cry about everybody voting against it. Well, that was the reality, right? The reality was people were going to vote against it, and you can either compromise and get something done or dig in and get nothing done. But and that's what I think people... people were concerned about who were most sophisticated and understanding how government works. But I want to pivot into Joe asking you. Joe knows how, but yeah, I'll just does. say he knows but, how. Mike Bloomberg, when he kept getting pushed on stop and frisk, at no point did he pivot to look at my Greenwood initiative, 100%. which is the only African-American economic empowerment plan. He actually had has many plans. He just didn't get If you're the explaining, table. you're losing. And over and over again, he was explaining stop and frisk, explaining stop and frisk, instead of saying, hey, we dropped the murder rate. Or saying, hey, we kept the subways running. Or, hey, we kept the garbage going, right? Like things that, that he couldn't figure out how to pivot. But you have been great at figuring out to pivot. So you will appreciate that I need to pivot Do into it. a question that is core to this show that I ask of all our guests. Stephanie Rule, what makes you angry? Lack of effort. Hmm. It's my number one. So effort to me is everything, right? I mean, this goes back to what my mom says to me every day, right? You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the best. It doesn't have to be the most expensive. You don't have to get an A. I just need to know that you tried your hardest, that you gave it your all. For me, there are three things in this world that we have no control over. Time, health, and weather. Everything <laughs> else is risk management. And that's how I look at everything. So if I'm giving, not that my time is more valuable than yours, all of our time is valuable, but if we're here, if we're doing this, if I'm not waking up and kissing my babies in the morning and picking them up at school, then we better be giving it, like, then there's no reason for me to be here. We have to leave it all on the field every single day. And if we fail, that's okay, but effort is everything. And people who are punching the clock and mailing it in, I really need them to get off my team. Mm. I love that. My football coach, one of my mentors, a guy named EJ Mills, Amherst College, shout out coach, uh, used to say attitude. You went to Amherst? Yeah. Go figure, right? Did Rich Willard go to college? Yeah, he was my quarterback. Oh my God, he, he's he was so my, he was my, he was, <laughs> I mean, he was my quarterback. Rich and I, I mean, Rich Willard is full on hot. He fully, was also the best quarterback he, in our he school is. history. He was my quarterback. I was okay, the tight end. Do you know back in the day, Rich Willard used to wear- We're going to talk wear, about Rich Willard Rich and how Willard hot he is wear, on my podcast. Rich Willard this used is, to wear a sugar daddy costume every single year for Halloween in New York City. Like the cheesiest box costume you wow. can ever see. And just see what he could pick up. And every year it was a hotter and hotter girl. I love Rich Willard. That's amazing. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina. You ready for like his yeah. morning workout? He water skis every day. How cool is that? I love, I mean, Rich Willard, the best. Yeah. Yeah. He would have done a lot better on the debate stage than Mike Bloomberg. No, he would not. <laughs> he absolutely would have. No, he would definitely he absolutely not would have. Rich Willard. Listen, all right. No, so no, so we'll, maybe we'll do a charity not. event at not. some point. We'll not. have Rich not. Willard debate Mike Bloomberg. Um, he and would not. Mike Bloomberg definitely win, would not win on the hot scale. But Rich Willard, blast from the past. See how small this world is? Right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, our coach was a guy named EJ Mills. He used to say attitude and effort is key. And, really? and Rich Willard and I were uh, about a minute and 47 seconds away from an undefeated season in our senior year. He was wow. an exceptional quarterback. Great guy. He's so hot. And so hot. <laughs> I won't disagree. Very hot. Very hot. Okay. So this helps me pivot into, the, into, like, into the next question. Rich Willard. This is, this is the beauty of You're Googling of him right now. So hot. Yeah. He was, he was hot. <laughs> Isn't he? He's absolutely so hot. hot. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. If you can't find him, he works at Seaport Securities in Charleston, South Carolina. We're blowing this guy's life up right now. The subject of, of a podcast. Okay, so I've got to ask you because you have to go on TV and talk about things other than Rich Willard. Other than Rich. Um, 
<laughs> Stephanie Rule, question I ask of everyone, because this show is about, uh, about anger, but also about channeling it into positive outcome. Yeah. And that's, I think, a theme of the what's happening of in this moment. The best part energy. 100%. 100%. And you have a very unique energy. And every time I talk to someone, I want to talk to someone who's inspiring, important, and iconic. And you're all those things now. Oh like, you God. really are a leader in this country <laughs> that's shaping what the country's been, what it is, and what it will be. Um, but you're also helping us break it down. I was hoping we could get into family. I was hoping we could get into the secrets of your success because you're, you're a great American success story, especially how you pivoted from, from one career into another at a time when the country needs you right now to help break it down. If I had to say, if I had a secret yeah. with regard to success, yes. it's there's no such thing as an ugly truth. There's just your truth. So if you can, right. if you can push shame away, if you can push embarrassment away and just own your truth, you have a lot better chance of being success, successful, right? Yeah. Instead, like we're, we're putting on such a show or we're a fraud and we're, we're hiding these secrets because we don't want people to see what we're insecure about or what we're weak at. What if you just showed it? What if you just said it? If you owned your weaknesses or your embarrassments, then they're not embarrassing anymore because you own them. I, I love that. I love that. And that's why I think you're a role model for so many people too. Um, especially in this environment that's combative and complicated and because dynamic. They, they can't get you, right? Yeah, they want to humiliate yeah. you and get you down. They can't if you wear your flaws. Dude, I, I, I appreciate that very much. And I think anyone listening, no matter what their background is, will appreciate that. But let me ask you another question that I ask of all our guests. Stephanie Rule, what makes you happy? This is the quietest you've ever been in any of my experiences of being around you. What makes me happy? Waking up every day, opportunity, being American, being able to afford my life, being able to take care of my parents, seeing my kids thrive, seeing my kids with my husband. Uh, watching people who work with me and for me go on and do amazing things with their lives. Um, what makes me happy? Building and maintaining real friends. It makes me so happy to reconnect with people that are doing really well. It makes me so happy to see people I believe in being successful and watching people not take from one another. Like we're getting to a place, I think, where in my own career, when I was in my 20s, I had such sharp elbows. And in the short term, it was great because you could be so successful, but you're successful standing alone. And I think that winning alone is fine because you're like standing on a podium and you're going, this is great, I'm the best but it's lonely. And yeah. then when you lose alone, it's, it blows. And if you can change your mindset and really create a team mindset, then winning on a team is way more fun. Cause then when you lose and you know you're gonna lose, somebody else will pick you up. So what makes me happy is to create an environment where we're all honestly trying to have a good time. Mm -hmm. And then even when we're losing, we're kind of laughing our way through it. Cause I've been on the other side that was such a snake pit. And even if you're the biggest snake that's winning, you're still a fucking snake. Mm. And I've been the other, and so I'd rather not be. Mm. Thank you for that. In the, in the army, we used to say, all, we all bond in the suck. 
Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, you need that continuity and that teamwork, but I think you, you bring that spirit to everything you do. And I'm, I'm grateful for your friendship, for your leadership, for your inspiration, for your tenacity. I think especially in a moment like this, you're, you're, you're a leader of the moment right now. Like today, this week, with the intersection of Bloomberg and technology and business, and now you're the senior business correspondent here at MSNBC. Mm-hmm. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, but I'm grateful for your friendship. And the final aspect of our show is the giving of the gifts. Yes. Because you are ne- uniquely prepared, but I don't think you're prepared for this. Oh, my um, goodness. It's not a Rich Willard t-shirt. But oh you go on right for the liquor. I go, wow. So everybody gets, I'll help you with this. Now that I've said that drinking red wine makes you feel like a human yeah, cat I'm it's about not, to open a bottle of it's it it's not red wine so we always pick um, a wow an American made whiskey love and it and that is Fort, Fort ha- Hamilton Fort Hamilton double bourbon and double barrel double barrel whiskey. and uh, you're I thought about you and the fact that you're coming both barrels all the time. People say that to me all the time, and I don't. I never know what that means. It means you're you're, you're bringing it. <laughs> you're bringing people it. People have said that and to me forever. Yeah. They're like, I'm like, I don't know why that didn't go well. And people are like, Well, you came with two barrels. It came out. It means two you're not barrels. holding back, and uh, you're not holding back. And it's made in Brooklyn. It, Fort Hamilton is the historic place, you know, there military you site here. And so I thought it'd be great for you when you. Very excited about it. By the way, you did finish the margarita, which I, did. I think is awesome. I did. did. You didn't answer salt or no salt normally. Salt. Yeah. Salt. Okay. Salt. And then you've got some gear. Angry. Made by um, the veterans Very of Oscar soft. Mike, 100% made in the USA. Where is it made? Made in Chicago. The, Love guys, it. the guys are in Chicago, uh, made by veterans, and it's super comfortable. Did you have your wife source it? She's in fashion. No, but you know my wife and you know Karen and they are massive yeah. fans of yours, but they, they approve uh-huh. of this message. Wow, I love it. Yeah, I'm glad Blue you like it. Blue and red because you're yes. keeping it real. Absolutely. Wow, and peeps? Yes, and here's the final question, the Rorschach test of our show. We started this show around Easter of last year. Every single guest we've ever had has has made a choice. Stephanie Rule, there are three colors, blue, pink, and yellow. Which color of peeps would you choose and why? Pink, because who doesn't like hot pink? And uh, before eat, I wouldn't eat it like this. You did like, it with like the head pop too. Go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'd go with pink because it's a hot pink, and I'd freeze them because if you've ever had frozen peeps, Ooh. they're delicious. I yeah. love that. That's yeah. an insight that we've never had go. before. Or for a quick science project to do at your mom's house with your kids, when you put one in a microwave for like forty seconds, it like mutates into like a monster. So I recommend that too. That's amazing. There you go. You, you continue some, to give us amazing little... gifts of of, of, of energy and positivity and insight. There you go. So, so you can freeze a peep, you can microwave a peep, and uh, if you do it all after throwing down this. Fort Hamilton, it'll make it even more exciting. Amazing. You're going to keep it exciting. You're going to bring spring break and AP calculus to NBC and MSNBC for many years to come. I'm going to try. But you're a really, really inspiring voice. And I'm grateful that you spent so much time, especially with all going on right now this week. Um, And we're looking forward to seeing you continue to come with both barrels. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Together, Together, we rise. Together. Ladies and gentlemen, the great and powerful Stephanie Rule from deep inside 30 Rock. We really are. Especially in times like these, when everybody's hustling, there's plenty of reason to be angry, but there's also a way to hustle and make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope.
We're all sharing in the hustle. And after a historic Super Tuesday time, I want to give a big shout out to all my fellow independents who voted and those who couldn't and those who will in the days ahead. We are the most underrepresented political group in America, but the fastest growing and especially this year, the most powerful. So get on out and vote. There are still open primaries. There are still technically Republican primaries. And of course, there's the big one in November. So one of my actions for you this week is to just go to vote.gov. You can find out all the information. Stephanie and I talked about some family traditions. Start a new family tradition in your house. Go to vote.gov and make sure everybody's signed up. Do your part to make our country a better place. And there's another way you can help do the same. It's clear now that the final three candidates will all be men. And the next president of the United States will be a man. But that may and should and must change at some point. And it'll change because we support and mentor women nationwide. Women who will be inspired by Stephanie and so many other powerful women we've had on this show. So check out Girls Inc. at girlsinc.org. Girls Inc. focuses on the development of the whole girl. She learns how to value herself, take risks, and discover and develop her inherent strengths. The combination of long-lasting mentorship relationships, a pro-girl environment, and research-based programming equips girls to navigate gender, economic, and social barriers and grow up healthy, educated, and independent. Informed by girls and their families, Girls Inc. also advocates for legislation and policies that increase opportunities and rights for all girls. If you go to their website, you can find out how to donate to invest in girls to navigate those barriers. You can figure out how to join their advocacy efforts and make an impact on the Hill. And you can fundraise. You can rally your friends and help Girls, Inc. reach more people. Or you can do something as simple as becoming a social media ambassador. Be a part of the conversation. Follow them across all their social media platforms and spread the message by becoming a Girls, Inc. social media ambassador. With your support, we can create more leaders like Stephanie Rule, more change makers, more helpers. Be a helper. Support Girls, Inc. and inspire all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. Go to girlsinc.org and invest in the future of America. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. Every episode's a hustle. A lot of people work together to make things happen. So I want to send some big thanks to a few folks who broke their backs to really make this work. First of all, Stephanie Rule. She rules. She's absolutely amazing. So generous, so fun, so dynamic, and just someone you definitely need to watch and, and keep an eye out for. She rules. And Lauren Wynn on her team, especially, who helped coordinate all this, got us into 30 Rock. And Holly Trax on the team at NBC. They squeezed us into NBC on one of Stephanie's busiest days of the year. I also want to thank my old quarterback, Rich Willard. Hope you're well, man. Haven't seen you in years, but I hope you enjoyed the episode. And thanks for being an awesome quarterback all those years. We were about a minute, 47 seconds away from an undefeated season, and we'll always have that, man. Also, thanks to Harry Smith, who's just a great mentor and friend. Uh, go back and check out episode 36 if you haven't already. That's one of my favorites. He's an American media legend. And we had an awesome and inspiring conversation with a guy who's been a fixture in your living room for decades. It was a holiday-spirited episode, and we took a tour through the heart of the country with this wise and learned guide who's driven the roads, climbed the mountains, rode the rivers, and walked the trails. So big thanks to Harry for his wisdom, for helping us set up the cameras, and for just being a great American. 
Speaking of great Americans, big thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich, who continues to hustle. She figured out how to get margaritas into NBC security, which was no small feat. Big thanks to creative Chris Rosenthal, who's always hustling, working out graphics and pictures and fonts, making all our social media and all our graphics look awesome. Thanks to the whole team at Righteous Media. This enterprise continues to grow. Thanks to all of you hustling every day. And that includes Roy Velchek, who continues to shoot our video. If you haven't seen our video, go to angryamericans.us for the video of Stephanie, uh, Henry Rollins, Rosie Perez, and all our recent interviews. If you're a big fan of the show and you, you haven't checked out those videos, Go over and check them out. And making the sound sing is Bill Schultz, always holding it down. Thanks to you, my friend, for all the sound engineering and wizardry. Thanks to our friends at Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Spring's coming up, so check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now. We've got all different colors. We've got all different designs. They are super comfortable, and they are Stephanie Rule approved. Want to thank the LA Times. The LA Times had me on their live Super Tuesday coverage on their live stream. Want to thank them for the opportunity there. You can find that online. I'll probably be doing it again in the future. And it's time to thank a listener. Every episode, I thank a few angry Americans just for listening. And I always want to hear from you. And we got a hotline. So check out 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind. Let me know what's got you angry. Let me know what you think of the show. Send a shout out to any of our guests and I'll make you famous. I'll make you famous. That's 833-332-6479. Call, leave us a voicemail, tell us what's got you angry, and maybe we'll use it in a future show. You can also shout us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere else on social media. Do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. And thanks to a couple listeners who did do it. First, Lisa Delaney, who tweets it at Delane63. She is in the Bay Area. She is a second-generation San Francisco native, obsessed with all things the city, all things San Francisco Giants, and very happy about her World Series champion baseball Giants, the other Giants. But she tweeted, son of a... That ep was freaking awesome on so many counts. It's not really possible to know someone or the contents of a soul from a podcast. This was pretty close to a control sample. Empowering, enlightening, engaging, and funny as shit. Hashtag the Blazin B210. Hashtag look for the helpers. She's talking about the episode with Rosie Perez from last week, which you must check out. I am still so moved by that episode. Rosie, very open, talking about her history, talking about her ideas, talking about boxing talking about the Me Too movement. If you're new to the show, go back and check it out. If you missed it, go back and check it out. It's timeless, and Rosie is just absolutely fantastic. Also is fantastic, um, my friend M, who treats at Bud Has Gift 1, somewhere on the East Coast, radical, moderate, independent, voting blue till this GOP is out of power, a musician and lover of animals and plants, hashtag geeks resist, says that she loves episode seven with Henry Rollins, among my favorite episodes ever. If you haven't checked out Angry Americans, just do it. You won't be disappointed. You are right, M. The episode with Henry Rollins is absolutely fantastic. It continues to be our number one most downloaded episode ever. So even if you don't know who Henry Rollins is, check it out. If you do know who Henry Rollins is, you're going to love it. Go back and check out episode 37 with Henry Rollins. But thank you to all of you. Please keep the feedback coming. Keep that feedback coming. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and sound off. And you might get a special gift from me, which might include... 
Peeps, because Peeps season is here. And what I found out, thanks to some of you, is that there are many more varieties of Peeps than just yellow, pink, and blue. Tina, my friend Tina Wisnet, uh, sent a picture from her local store of Peeps in Sour Watermelon and Fruit Punch and Pancake and Syrup Peeps, which are either absolutely amazing or absolutely disgusting. I am not sure, but I read up on this. And it turns out there are jalapeno, pancake and syrup, sour watermelon, fruit punch, purple or lavender, apparently. And there are limited edition Fruit Loops flavored peeps. Check that out. There's also chocolate caramel swirl filled delights. I had no idea. Peeps are not actually a sponsor, but I read up on them and I found it to be pretty interesting. When founder Sam Bourne would display a sign for his freshly made candy, he would title it, quote, Just Bourne, playing off his last name and the fact that his candy was fresh. And so the guy who created Peeps is actually a pretty amazing success story. He was a Russian immigrant who came to the United States in December of 1909. His name was Sam Bourne, and he was actually awarded the key to the city of San Francisco for inventing a machine that mechanically inserted sticks into lollipops. Sam Bourne is also credited with the invention of chocolate sprinkles, then known as Jimmy's, and the hard coating on ice cream bars. Now, Stephanie got into a little bit, but apparently several recipes and creative ideas to alter Peeps have been invented, including recipes from various creators that include Peeps s'mores, Peeps pancakes, homemade chocolate-covered Peeps, Peeps marshmallow chocolate chip cookies, Peeps brownies, Peeps popcorn, Peeps frosting, Peeps crispy treats, and Peeps syrup. Peeps can also be used as a marshmallow topper for hot chocolate, of course. There's also a recipe for peepshi, like sushi, which involves placing a peep onto a Rice Krispie treat and wrapping it in a fruit by the foot to create a single peepshi roll in the style of a sushi roll. That's amazing, and maybe disgusting, but amazing. In 2017, several internet and Twitter postings and news stories claimed outrage that peeps was being used as a pizza topping. And finally, the annual Peeps Eating Contest is apparently held each year at National Harbor in front of the Peeps Company store. In 2017, the winner from California ate 255 Peeps in five minutes. 255 Peeps in five minutes. The guy's name? Matt Stoney. Yes, really, Stoney. Anyway, big thanks to Peeps and big thanks to all of you for sharing the love and for sharing the fun, especially this time of year. And speaking of fun, big thanks to my family, my amazing wife, and my two boys. My wife's been out of the country working, so I want to especially thank the family for rallying this week, uh, and especially their grandmother, their nanny, nanny like in the Italian name, nanny, Elaine Hale. She is amazing and taking care of the boys right now while I record this, keeping them quiet, I hope, for just a little bit longer. And big thanks to Natasha Ramirez, their big sister, our little sister, a belated congratulations to her and Kachi on their wedding. Their amazing wedding was a couple of weeks ago. We were honored to be there. But big thanks to the amazing, strong, dynamic women who helped raise my boys and help keep our family together and happy and spirited. Just like you, dear listeners, so thanks for tuning in. Please keep getting back up. Please keep driving forward. Please keep hustling and continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on Apple device, please leave the show a quick review. If you're new here, subscribe. and We will have it hot and fresh and waiting for you like the peeps on top of a hot chocolate every Thursday. And as you're hustling, we can hustle through it together. And keep that feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And 
Go to angryamericans.us. Sign up for our newsletter. You'll find out about upcoming events, which are coming soon in the spring. We'll have more events like the ones we did with Henry Rollins and Mayor Pete Buttigieg. We'll have new merchandise and new programs and products coming soon. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we will keep this movement growing week by week by week. And it's okay to be angry. But no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. We're all out there fighting the good fight together, and we're all out there hustling. And together, we can turn that vigil and anger into positive impact. Just like Stephanie, just like America. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Wash your hands, keep it cool, and keep hustling. Spring is coming, and that's a good thing. And the investments we're making now will pay off in our future. They will pay off in the long term. But until then, keep hustling. And stay vigilant, America. Stay vigilant. Well, let me tell you.